Tonight we are finishing our six-part series on the miracles of Jesus, and there's really nothing greater that you could know more about than the life of Jesus, because we are the body of Christ, and we have been called to be the hands and feet of Jesus right now on this globe. But before we start teaching tonight, let's just ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we come to you, God, in the name of Jesus, God. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing, Lord, in the life of your people, God. We thank you for the moving and the operation of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would anoint me to teach your word tonight, not just to those here, but those watching by Facebook, by YouTube. God, that my words would minister grace to the hearers, God, that you would take the coal off the altar tonight and touch it to my lips, God, that you would anoint me to speak, thus saith the Lord. And God, we give you praise, we give you glory, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said amen and amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadareans. Now, early on in this series, we dealt with the miracle of Jesus as the, as the disciples were crossing over the sea. Uh, you know the story, the storm came, the Lord said, let us cross over, and then they were met with great waves and uh, great uh, turbulence, and the Lord uh, silenced their storm, and here they are on the other side of that storm in verse 2, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And he said, I implore you by God that you torment me not. And Jesus said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, and then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. It says there were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Now, I want to pause there for a second tonight. Here you have the disciples. They were instructed to get into the boat, to cross over to the other side of the sea. They didn't know that there was a storm that was about to come their way. The Lord knew ultimately, being that he is all-knowing, he knew that they would face a storm. Nevertheless, the Lord told them to get into the boat and to cross over to the other side of the sea. Now, I believe that everything that happens in our life 
is either caused or allowed by God. That nothing catches God by surprise. That the Lord will allow us to go through storms and he'll allow us to go through trials and tribulations. Sometimes the waters get a little rough. The good news is, is that Jesus is in your boat and there is a purpose in everything that you go through. I do not believe that your suffering is in vain. I do not believe that your hardship is in vain. I believe that God allows the trials and the tribulations for one purpose and that's for us to learn to trust in him and to build faith within us because once these disciples got to the other side of the sea there was a man waiting to be delivered there was a man that needed deliverance now Jesus I believe that Jesus also knew about this man before he even got there and Jesus knew that what this man needed uh, was not a psychologist. What Jesus, what this man needed was not just a, a feel-good message. What this man needed was not just medication. What this man needed was a touch from God, was, was deliverance from Jesus Christ himself. Now, I am not against resources and God using resources in this life to bring about healing in our life. But I believe that if this man was alive today, I believe that he would have been in every mental institution. I think that they would have had him on 20 different medications when in reality, what he needed was a touch from God. Now, that doesn't mean that God does not use human resources. I believe that even though God uses different resources, there's only one source, and that name is Jesus. The Bible says that this man, that, that he exhausted essentially all help in the flesh. Uh, the Bible says that they tried to tame him. They tried to bind him with chains and shackles and this man was was essentially uh, cutting himself, and, and and they were trying to do whatever they they could do to prevent this this man from from engaging in self harm. And I believe that the enemy is 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 after the young people, the young and the old. But there are so many people uh, in this life right now that are suffering uh, with self harm and, and and even suicidal thoughts. And I want you to know tonight that there is hope tonight. And that hope comes through Jesus Christ. So you don't have to live another day dominated by those things. That you can be delivered through Jesus Christ himself. Hallelujah. And so... Jesus comes in contact with this man. The Bible says that when this man saw him afar off, that he ran to Jesus and, uh, and, and, and said to Jesus, Jesus, uh, thou son of the most high God. And, and so the evil spirits that were controlling and dominating this man recognized the authority of Jesus Christ. And that same authority is operating in you as a child of God, which means that you don't have to give in uh, to the devil when the devil huffs and when the devil puffs. You got authority in the name of Jesus Christ. You have been given all power and authority and you can exercise that authority. The devil might try to intimidate you, but the devil's got to bow and the devil's got to submit to the savior and the king that is inside of you. And so don't ever let the devil, the Bible says, resist the devil and, and he shall flee. You've got power and you got authority over the devil himself. And the Bible's says that this man uh, that was controlled by these evil spirits, that Jesus asked him the question, what is your name? And, and they said, uh, legion, for we are many. Now, in Roman culture, a legion was generally about 6,000. 
And so this man was not controlled just by one evil spirit. He was dominated and he was possessed by many evil spirits. And I want you to know tonight that if God can deliver a man as hopeless and as helpless as that, I want you to know that you're not too far gone for God to deliver you. You might say, well, you don't know how messed up I am. Uh, you might not know how depressed that I am, or you might not know how anxious uh, that I am. You know, I was joking around with somebody about serotonin and, and the natural uh, uh, chemical in our body that can make us feel good. And they said, yeah, I think I, I ran out of that stuff. I don't think I have any left. But you know what? The Spirit of God, He can renew your heart, and He can renew your mind, and He can renew your body, and He can make you whole. He can give you joy. He can give you peace. And, and, and ultimately, we have to look to Jesus as that source. And even if God uses resources and God uses individuals to help you and, and counsel you, you know, sometimes we can uh, think of counseling in the church world uh, as a, a bad thing. And if you go to some to counsel you that you're not looking to the Lord. Well, I believe in biblical counsel. I believe one of the most important parts of ministry is counseling people according to the Word of God. Now, uh, there are many quote unquote counselors that have diverted to the word from, from the word of God to the words of men and ultimately you've got to find someone that will counsel you according to the word of God and who will encourage you according to the word of God but don't be embarrassed to realize that hey you're struggling it, it's I I would rather somebody open up and share what they're going through than, than go through a battle alone that nobody knows about and feel like they can't open up to anybody. It's not a sign of weakness to admit that you're struggling. It's a first step to getting help. And so don't be afraid to open up to people. Don't be afraid to say, hey, I'm struggling right now. Uh, don't be afraid to say that you feel depressed or you feel anxious. We are body, soul, and spirit. And we go through a, a, a wide variety of different emotions and different situations situations causes different uh, emotions to sometimes get the best of us. Don't feel ashamed and don't feel like a weak individual. Many men and women of God throughout the word of God and even throughout church history that God used in a significant way dealt with serious battles in their life battled depression, battled anxiety, and, and there you are thinking that because you feel those feel that way that God can't use you, but I want you to know God can use you. And, and oftentimes he uses those things in our life to cause us to press in and then be able to minister to other people that are going through it. But here's this man. I mean, this man is bound. Uh, I mean, this man, uh, he wasn't just like oppressed, but this man was, was possessed and he was out of his mind. And everybody knew how bad off he was. And I think that God takes pleasure in taking the worst cases and, and turning their life around. You know, Mike, God has done great things in Mike's life. And, and I remember him sharing everything that he went through. And, and he said, but I'm normal now. I said, well, that's debatable. But in all, serious, God, in, in all seriousness, God has brought him through, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing tonight, God has brought him through so many things, and, and so many people that probably wrote him off and say, you're always going to struggle, and he looked to the Lord, and God brought healing, and God brought deliverance, and so here's this man, and, and the evil spirit said, 
uh, legion, for we are many. He was controlled by a legion uh, of devils. And it says that they, they begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. And then it says a large herd of swine was feeding. Uh, they, were, they were pigs. And so all the demons begged him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. And then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There's about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. And so those who fed the swine, I mean, imagine what kind of scene that would have been. Imagine seeing 2,000 pigs that ultimately were possessed run down the hill into the sea and drown into the sea. The people that were feeding the swine, they got, they got spooked by it. And so the Bible says that they, all, that they all fled. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then it says in verse 15, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, I love this, sitting and clothed in, in his right mind. Only God can take somebody who is that bad off, somebody who lost his mind, come in contact with a Savior, and then be sitting and clothed and in his right mind. You know, I tell people, I believe that one of the first things that God does when we get saved is he begins to heal our mind. He begins to heal our hearts. He begins to heal our spirit because, you know, sin has a way of, of destroying us and destroying us emotionally and destroying us uh, spiritually. And, and some will say, well, if you're going through uh, those uh, emotions and you just need to change your environment. And, then, and, and so then you go to uh, Florida and you go on vacation, but then you realize that no matter where you are, you're still struggling. Because it takes an inward change. When, when Jesus heals you, he heals you from the inside out, which means whether you're in Florida or you're in Michigan or you're in Louisiana or you're in Oklahoma. Uh, now, if you're in like, you know, some states out there like uh, Oregon, then you still might not be in your right mind. I'm just kidding. But, you know. Wherever you are, God can heal you and put you in your right mind. And it says here that they were afraid. I mean, this was such a shocking change, and it was so drastic that those who weren't saved, that they didn't even know what to make of it. You know, I think that it can be the same way that when God performs a miraculous today, that people who are unsaved, if they can't make, make sense of it, then they're afraid. There's a saying that, uh, we often fear what we do not understand. You know, sometimes it's the same way with speaking in tongues because people don't understand the purpose of it. They don't know what the Bible says about it. People who were raised in backgrounds where uh, they're not as acquainted with it, sometimes when they hear believers praying in the Holy Spirit, sometimes it can scare them a little bit just because they don't understand. And that's why it's important to know what the Bible says. It's right in the book. You just got to read your Bible, and then when you see what it is and you see the purpose of it and you realize it's of God, then you realize there's nothing to be afraid of, that anything that's from God and of God that you should uh, desire. And verse 16, it says, and those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon possessed and about the swine. And they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, speaking of Jesus, he who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. I love that. This man experienced such a touch from God, such a miraculous touch from God, that he told Jesus, I want to keep following after you. 
are you truly following after Jesus today, or are you just looking for a touch from God? Some people just want their miracle, but they don't want to surrender. Some people, they want healing, but they don't want submission. Uh, Some people want deliverance, but they don't want to be a living sacrifice unto God. This man said, hey, I don't just need healing, I need a savior. And he, can, he wanted to continue to follow after Jesus. And then something uh, interesting happened. It says in verse 19, however, Jesus did not permit him. Instead, he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. In other words, go preach your testimony. Go tell the world of the things that the Lord has done for you. Can I remind you here today that you should never... Uh, keep your testimony to yourself. You should never feel bad about testifying of what God has done in your life. They might think, well, uh, he talks about himself too much. He's conceited. All she talks about is what God did in her life. No, that's what gives inspiration to other people. When you testify of what God has done in your life, people ought to say, if God can do it for him, he can do it for me. If God can do it for her, God can do it for me. And so don't feel ashamed to testify of what the Lord has done in in your life. Jesus told them, You ought to go tell your friends, go tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And then in verse 20, it says, and he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Now I want to take you to the next miracle tonight. It's a short passage in Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. It says, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, this would have been at a time when many of the other synagogues would have already shut Jesus out. They didn't want Jesus preaching because he was basically coming as a fulfillment of all their laws, and they didn't like that. They didn't believe he was a Messiah, but this was one of those who still allowed, one of them that still allowed Jesus to teach. And then in verse 11, it says, And behold, there is a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. Now, think about that. It says here that it was a spirit of infirmity. And so we believe that sometimes physical issues can be a result of a spiritual one. We don't believe that every physical issue is a result of a spiritual one, but we do believe, according to the Word of God, that sometimes it is. And it says here that this woman had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, And that she was bent over and in no way could raise herself up. And this here is really a type of the church before we came to Jesus. This is a type of all of humanity before we came to Jesus. We were essentially helpless. We were crippled. Now, uh, many believe this was a, a curvature of the spine and she couldn't lift herself up. This was something that controlled her life. This was something that altered every aspect of her life. Uh, she was in a hopeless situation. And here Jesus is in the synagogue and he takes attention to this one woman that's in need. I'm so thankful that God always looks beyond the, the, the religion and he sees those that are truly in need of a touch from him. And Jesus saw this woman who was helpless for 18 years, bent over and, and, and no way could raise her up, affected because of a, a spiritual issue, a spirit of infirmity. And then it says in verse 12, but when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. 
Again, when Jesus saw her, Jesus called her to him. Can I tell you something here tonight? Jesus is calling you to himself. Jesus will not push you away. Uh, you might be a hopeless case. It might seem like tonight you might be broken. You might be messed up. But Jesus is calling you to him. And Jesus said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. Now, when Jesus said woman, it was not an expression of disrespect. If you say that in Western culture, if you say woman, then you might get smacked. So I don't recommend that today. But Jesus was not saying it in a disrespectful way. He said, woman, you are loose from your infirmity. In other words, that spiritual issue that was causing that physical infirmity, immediately she was delivered from it. And I believe that God can still do that today. I believe that those who are going through different infirmities that are affected by something spiritual, and that's why I believe that if something, uh, if somebody, especially if someone is suffering uh, emotionally and, and mentally, number one, I tell people, you got to make sure your heart is right before God. Number one, that's the most important thing. If there's things in your life that you feel are uh, displeasing to God and you feel like they're interfer interfering with your walk with God, the first and most important thing is to address those things. Because if it is something, because I'll tell you that sin can make you feel depressed. When you're, when you're running from God and you're straying from God, and you're living in sin, there's a, an, an emotional effect to that. And the, the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that comes with it can put you in a very low place. And it can put you in a place where you feel like you can't get back up again. And so it's important to deal with those things first. And Jesus told the woman, he said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, he was essentially saying the, th the same thing to the world. You are loose from your infirmity. You can experience that same deliverance today through the blood of Jesus. And it says, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Can you give God a hand clap of praise for that tonight? I want to take you to the last miracle before the resurrection, and it's found in Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in verse 50, we're going to read the second part of verse 50. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 50, but Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. This is when Jesus is in the garden and he's getting ready to be taken away to be crucified. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, which was Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him these powerful words. He said, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or you could say it like this, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Now, this is an important lesson in the ministry. Because some feel an obligation to cut everybody down. And they feel like that's their ministry, like a lumberjack. There's no such thing as a lumberjack ministry in the kingdom of God. Amen? <laughs> that's a sixth part of the fivefold ministry. But we don't believe in that here. But those who are always focused on cutting other people down, eventually it will usually come back around for those individuals. That's why I am very careful in what I say about other preachers and other pastors and other ministries because eventually if I'm 
the one to cut everybody else down. Yeah, and some people want you to be that kind of preacher where you're just against everything and it's almost like you're not for anything. I would rather be known for what I am for than what I am against and all those who I am against. Now, I believe in taking a stand against false doctrine. I believe in protecting the integrity of the gospel and defending the truth of the word of God. But I also believe in doing it in the right spirit uh, with the right intention and to do everything with a spirit of grace and humility. Uh, if, if you feel like you have to cut everybody else down uh, in order for people to trust you and to follow you, then that is a pretty pathetic approach in ministry. I don't want people to follow my preaching and my ministry because of other people that I've written off and other people that I'm against. I'd rather people listen to what I'm preaching because it's the word of God and it's feeding souls, feeding their souls. And, and I would rather feed the God's sheep. I'd rather feed the flock of God than just be someone that is always focused on cutting people down and tearing people down. And I'm thankful for those who have come here and they've said that since they've started coming here that they have learned to show grace to other preachers. This doesn't mean you're compromising the word. It doesn't mean that you're not taking a stand for truth. It's just that God gives you, the Bible says to, to, for everything you say to be salted with grace. Everything that, uh, every, all of your speech should minister grace to the hearers. And so even those who are off base, ultimately, I think in terms of what I can do and what I can say to help them. And in every service that we have and people that walk in the doors of this church, uh, I always ask the question, what can I preach that is actually going to help them? What do I feel I can say that is going to minister to them? Not just get on these soapboxes and just, you know, go at it and, and just start, you know, laying spiritual punches at people. I, I'm thinking about what's actually going to help those that are before me. You know, sometimes people are so focused on just listing off all these different names of preachers, and then 99% of the people in their congregation have no idea who those people are, and they don't even listen to those preachers. And I think that sometimes God will uh, use us to address certain uh, doctrines and false doctrines in the church, and we do that. We believe that uh, in doing that as a church. We believe in addressing the doctrine. I personally prefer more to address the doctrine than to say something that would malign someone's character uh, because I feel like at the end of the day, that's what people need. They need what the Word of God says, and so sometimes you have to draw a comparison doctrinally uh, to let them know what's being taught and then tell them what the Bible says about it. I found that that's the more effective approach at things because at the end of the day, we want people to live according to the Word of God, not who said what uh, or who it was that said it, I should say. I want them to know what the Bible says and to, for them to use that as their roadmap. And so Jesus told them, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And so if you hold other people up to a certain standard, then you too are going to be held up to that same standard. And so we got to be careful in our approach. And so Peter cut off this man's ear. Jesus said, put your sword in its place for all who take out the sword will perish by the sword. And then Jesus said, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Think about that. Peter thought that he was doing Jesus a service by cutting off this man's ear. And Jesus was telling them, don't you know who I am? I'm the son of God. If, if, if I wanted to, I could pray to the heavenly father right now. And he, he would send down more than 12 legions of angels. Remember, legions is 6,000. 
Jesus said, if I called on my father right now, and, and even Jesus said to, to the heavenly father in the garden of Gethsemane, he asked the father to take that cup from him. And that cup represented the, the physical suffering that Jesus was about to endure. And he told the heavenly father, he said, if it be your will, take this cup from me. In other words, if there's any other way for the redemption of mankind to take place other than me being crucified on the cross, then please take that from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus knew from the very beginning that it was the heavenly father's plan uh, foreordained before the foundation of the world for him to come down onto this earth, uh, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life for 33 and a half years without sinning in a word, thought, or deed, and to be crucified on the cross for all of humanity to bring redemption to a lost world. And so Jesus told Peter, hey, what you're doing, it's not helping anything. If I wanted to, I could get out of this situation and Jesus said to them uh, in verse 54 how then could the scriptures be fulfilled uh, that this must happen and so Jesus was saying in order for all of the prophecies uh, to be fulfilled this had to happen Jesus uh, had to go to the cross Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. He said, I have the power to lay it down and to take it back up again. And so Jesus was not murdered. Jesus laid down his life as a living sacrifice, as a human sacrifice for you and for me. And then it says, in, uh, you know, this, this story is also talked about in Luke uh, chapter 22. Now, uh, in, in, in Luke chapter 22 specifically, it says uh, in verses 49 and 51, it says, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. In verse 51, and Je Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as a synoptic Gospels and really what that word synoptic means is similar. And so a large percentage of what you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, can be found in the other books, whereas John, uh, I believe it's over 90% of what's in the book of John is exclusive to the book of John. And so here you see the same instances in three different gospels. And here in verse 51, it says that Jesus touched his ear and healed him just like that. Now I want to take you to the final miracle and and uh, which is the resurrection, and I didn't plan for, um, you know, uh, the re resurrection to be taught on coming up to Resurrection Sunday, uh, because this will be my last message before Resurrection Sunday, but this is probably the most powerful uh, miracle that was performed, and, and I want to say this, that as we preach on the cross of Jesus Christ, that we should never make light of the resurrection, that we should never pit the crucifixion against the resurrection of Jesus. However, it was at the cross that Jesus said, it is finished. Uh, he said, it is finished when he was on the cross. Jesus didn't come out of the tomb and say, it is finished, because it was the blood that ultimately established the covenant between God and man. It was the blood throughout the Old Testament that allowed mankind to get in right relationship with God. And so the resurrection, what it did is it confirmed that the sacrifice of Jesus uh, was accepted before God. It validated that Jesus Christ truly was the Son of God and God in the flesh. And so the resurrection is one of the most important miracles uh, that took place. And in fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17 that if Jesus would not have risen from the dead, 
that our faith would be in vain. So it's important because I have, I have seen it where people will criticize preachers for elaborating on the resurrection. Uh, that should never, uh, I think you got the wrong scripture up there. I might have given you the wrong reference, so, so that's my bad, not yours. But um, I, I want to say this, that we should never uh, belittle the resurrection because the resurrection, it validated that Jesus was who he said he was, that he truly was the son of God. And in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it says that we actually have to believe that God rose Jesus from the dead to be saved. And so not only do you have to confess your sins, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And so the resurrection is a very critical part of your faith. You actually, you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus in order to be saved, in order to be uh, born again. And so we preach in the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We believe in preaching it all, but we do believe that it was at the cross that the covenant was cut between God and mankind. It was at the cross that the Bible says, Jesus said, it is finished, and that veil that was in the temple, which the Bible says that that veil was a type of the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so it symbolized the tearing of Jesus' flesh that would take place when he was crucified. And when Jesus said, it is finished, that dividing barrier between mankind and the presence of God was torn into two. And that's good news for you tonight because that means you have direct access into the presence of God. The Bible says that God has given us access into the holiest of all. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you have access to the presence of God. And Jesus said that he was the resurrection. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, and, and, and they said, well, I know that Lazarus will be raised in the coming resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection, which means that we don't preach on the resurrection just as a historical thing, but the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now working in you. The same power that, that brought Jesus out of that tomb is the same power that is working in your life every single day. It's the same power that gives you victory over sin. The Bible says that when you were crucified with Jesus, that you were then buried with Jesus, that you were then risen up with Jesus, and that you now walk in newness of life. And that those words newness of life actually mean a new power source. Source, and that new power source is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the resurrection power of God. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, and that same power is working in you tonight. Hallelujah. And it's believed that Jesus was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. After Jesus was resurrected, it's believed that there were over 500 people that saw Jesus Christ resurrected. It was a miracle before their eyes, and they ate with him, and they were able uh, to touch him physically, and, and they knew that Jesus was resurrected. Now, you see the resurrection prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And that's one of the beautiful things is when you look throughout the Old Testament prophecies and the, the types and shadows, one of them being Jonah. Jonah was one of the examples in the Old Testament. It's one of the previews of the resurrection of Jesus. It was written almost eight centuries before Jesus came. 
And in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39, when the religious leaders asked for a sign, Jesus rebuked them saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus himself said, Jonah served as a sign of his death, his burial and his resurrection. Just as Jonah was in that, the belly of that whale for three days, it was a type of Jesus being in the tomb for three days and then later rising again. Another beautiful example is Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 2. When you get there, you can say amen. Or you can just look at the screen. That works too. Forgot we're living in 2023. And then he said, this was God. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, he said, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder in worship and we will come back to you. Now, I love this here for like five different reasons here. Let me start with the first one. I love that that Abraham said, I want you to stay here with the donkeys. We're going up the mountain to worship. Can I tell you? Tonight, you can either stay at the bottom of the mountain with all the donkeys, or you can go up to worship and give God the praise and glory that is due his name. And Abraham said, stay here with the donkey. He said, the lad and I will go yonder and worship. Now, I remind you that God has already told Abraham to lay down Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, Abraham was somebody that proved his faith before God, and Isaac would have Uh, grown up and seen uh, Abraham's faithfulness and Abraham's obedience to the Lord. And so Abraham no doubt was going to do what God told him to do. And he said, we're going up yonder to worship. He was about to offer up his only begotten son. Well, that was Jesus. But he was about to offer up Isaac, his his dear son. and, And yet he considered it worship to offer up his son as a sacrifice to God. And yet Abraham said this, he said, we will come back to you. Now, Abraham, he already knew the promises that God had upon Isaac's life. And Abraham was so sure of that promise that God had given to him about Isaac, that he knew that even if he had to offer up his son as a sacrifice to God, and all that fire was put up underneath him, and he was burned to ashes, he knew that the God that he served was able to raise Isaac back up again. He knew that the God that he served was able to raise up Isaac. And he said those words, he said, we'll come back to you. Hallelujah. And it says that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, 
when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so Abraham knew that God was able to raise Isaac up again. And Isaac was a type of Jesus and that Isaac did not deserve to die, and Isaac was being placed on the altar, not because of fault of his own. Jesus went to the cross, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And when Isaac was willing to lay down his Isaac on the altar, you know, sometimes God just wants to see if you're willing to give everything to him. Even if he's not going to take it from you, even if it's his will for you to have those things, Sometimes he'll test you just to see if you're willing to give it to him. You know, God is not against, let me say it like this, God's not against blessing. God isn't against his people being blessed and even blessed financially. Uh, Let me say it like this, being wealthy is not a sin. The Bible says the love of money is a sin. But sometimes God will see if we're willing to give up what we have, and it may just be that when you give that to the Lord, that God uses that and he blesses you with more and with more and with more and with more. The question is, are you willing to lay your Isaac down? Are you willing to take those things that are most dear to you, most precious to you, most important to you, and lay them before God? And say, God, do what you want to do with this. I believe that sometimes God's got to bring us to that place with our ministry. Sometimes our ministry is our Isaac. Sometimes our ministry becomes more important than our relationship with God. And sometimes God has to challenge you and you have to make a decision. What's more important, your ministry or Jesus? What's more important, your influence or Jesus? What's more important, your popularity or Jesus? What's more important, money or Jesus? And so sometimes you've got to lay it all down as a sacrifice. And then when Abraham has Isaac on the altar and Abraham is about to thrust that knife into Isaac, the Lord stopped him and told him, I have provided me a sacrifice. That there was a ram that was stuck in the thickets, and the thickets were a type of the crown of thorns that that was upon Jesus' head when he was crucified. And so God did not ultimately uh, allow Isaac to sacri- or Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, but he provided a sacrifice in Isaac's place, and that sacrifice too is a type of Jesus. And now if Jesus rose again, then we too can look forward to the coming resurrection when all who are in Christ will rise up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord in the air. If Jesus was resurrected, then we can rest assured that the church will one day and soon be resurrected as well. That soon all of those who are in Christ, when the trumpet of God will sound, that we shall be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now let me say, say this, that the rapture is separate from the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's essentially two parts of the same event, 
But the rapture, we know that the rapture, we will meet the Lord in the air, whereas at the second coming, Jesus will touch the earth. And so I believe that there is absolutely nothing yet to be fulfilled on God's prophetic timeline for the rapture of the church, for the resurrection to take place. Now, some will say that they don't believe in the rapture because they don't see the word rapture in the Bible. Well, my question is, is do you believe in the resurrection? Because if you believe in the resurrection, then you believe even the, the, the rapture, the word rapture just simply means to be caught up. And that's what the Bible teaches. It says that we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible either, but the Bible says that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are all one. And so the rapture, the resurrection, the coming resurrection of the church, we believe could take place at any moment and at any time. I believe according to scripture that the the chain of events uh, according to biblical prophecy is that right now we are living in the church age and that at any moment that there's nothing yet to be fulfilled in order for the rapture to take place for the trumpet of God to sound the Bible says that no man knows a, the time when God has uh, put these things in place if somebody tells you that they know when the rapture is going to happen and they know when Jesus is coming back they are a liar that goes totally uh, totally contrary to the word of God. It's totally antithetical to the word of God. Nobody knows when Jesus Christ is coming back. But we do know the signs of the times. And when the seasons change, at least here in Michigan where you have four seasons, because in Louisiana you don't really have seasons. You just have pretty hot, hot, really hot, and extremely hot. So it doesn't really apply to Louisiana. So I'm sorry, Louisiana. You might not end up in the rapture. I'm just kidding. But we know when the, the seasons are changing because of the signs. The, the, the trees begin to change colors, and the grass begins to change colors, and it, gets, it starts getting more and more uh, cloudy, and, and, and things begin to change, and the sunlight isn't out like it used to be. There, there are signs of the times and the, of the seasons that are changing. And so although we don't know the exact time when Jesus will be coming back for the church, we do know that there will be signs of the times, and the Bible says that things shall get worse and worse. Uh, if you're thinking that in order for Jesus to come back, that we got to fix the whole world, and then Jesus is coming back for his church, uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. There are some who believe that once the Christians conquer in the political world, and they conquer in Hollywood, and they conquer in the financial world, and they conquer uh, all the different mountains of society, uh, then Jesus will come back for his church. The Bible doesn't say that that will be the condition of the world when Jesus returns. The Bible tells us that things are going to get worse and worse, that the hearts of men are going to wax cold, that, that there's going to be a, a departure from the faith, that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and, and famines and pestilences. The Bible tells us that there's going to be an increase of knowledge. I mean, think about how rapidly knowledge is increasing in the times that we're living in right now. I, I mean, think about the artificial intelligence that they're coming out with. And you have to ask the question, I mean, what more could you possibly do? What more, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, electronic devices that can read your mind and, and, and all these different things. There's a lot of things that are happening in, in the tech, uh, technological world 
that is far beyond what we ever could have imagined. But the fact that things are speeding up at such a rapid rate, the Bible tells us, will be a part of the return of Jesus Christ. It will be a sign of the return of Jesus Christ that knowledge will increase. And just looking over just the last 10 years and what's been accomplished in the last, last 10 years in technology compared to the last 50 years, you can see the dramatic increase in knowledge and the things that you can do uh, with technology. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. You know, there's a particular restaurant nearby, and I remember I went to uh, to order from it, you know, because some of these restaurants, they, they're lazy. They don't want to take your order, so you got to go on a computer and learn how their little uh, device works, and then you got to put in your order and pay for it, and you're basically your own cashier. And, you know, I, I, I had gone to a particular place to get food, and then um, like a week later, I went to order there again, and then I said, based off of what you previously ordered, we recommend this. And I thought, how in the world do they know what I previously ordered? Well, I realized that they had a little camera there on the front of the screen, and so it recognizes you, whether it's facial recognition or iris recognition, and it can tell you the last thing that you ordered, and most of people probably don't even have a clue what's happening. They have something called iris recognition in certain airports where when you're going through customs, all you got to do is look in the little device, and it will recognize the iris in your eyeball because nobody else in the world has the same iris as you and so it's called iris recognition and it can detect who you are just like that and so these things are just speeding up quicker and quicker and quicker and these things are all a sign of the return of jesus christ verse uh first corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 i won't hold you too much longer tonight first uh, corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 says but now christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Meaning that just as Adam brought death into the world, the first Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, brought resurrection. Verse 22, for as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. You know, I, I love in Acts chapter 3 and verse 15, when Peter was preaching to the Jews, and I mean, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that when he was preaching to those that crucified him, that they were pricked in their hearts, that that was really conviction, the convicting of the Holy Spirit where they realize, hey, we're the ones that crucified him, and now we realize that he truly was the Messiah. He truly was the king of the Jews. But in verse chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Hallelujah. God raised up Jesus, and it says that he will also raise us up by his power. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, there's a powerful verse here. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Again, that I may know him. Can I tell you something here tonight? God doesn't want you to just know about Jesus. God doesn't want you to just know about his word. 
God doesn't want you just to know about what Jesus spoke. Paul said that I may know him. And the most important thing for you is to come into a greater experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ himself, that you might know him. And it says, and the power of his resurrection, which means that as we're preaching on the resurrection tonight, this is not just something for us to look back and say, hey, man, that was pretty cool. I mean, Jesus was in a tomb for three days. He was lifeless for, for three days. There was absolutely no way in the physical for Jesus to be risen from the dead. That was pretty amazing. And then you just go on with your life. No, it's God's will for you to know the power of his resurrection on a personal basis. It's God's will for you to experience the power of the resurrecting power of God. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. My question for you tonight is, are you walking in his resurrection power tonight? Are you walking in the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit? And then it says, in the fellowship of his sufferings, which means that if Jesus suffered in this life, that we too, we go through hardships. And really just following Jesus in and of itself is a hardship. Just making the decision to turn from the things of this world and to turn from sin and to follow after Jesus, it's not easy telling your friends, hey, I'm not going to that party, or hey, I'm not going out and getting drunk, and I'm not going out and getting high. That in and of itself will cause hardship in your life. It's not easy following after Jesus. It's not easy forsaking all and giving your life to him, but it's God's will for us to know the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. Let me say this tonight. Before we experience resurrection power, we must first be crucified in the flesh. Before we can experience the power of the Holy Spirit, as it regards resurrection power, we must first come to the end of ourselves, and we must be crucified with Jesus. Once we're crucified with Jesus, then we can be risen up with him. A couple more verses of scripture here, Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. It says that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And so we preach that Jesus was crucified, and we also preach that Jesus rose again. I know that the Roman Catholics teach that every time you participate in communion, that Jesus is being crucified over and over. No, Jesus was crucified once and for all. And Jesus is not a cross anymore. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And, and we serve a risen Savior here tonight. You see, if you go to the Middle East, you will find the grave of Muhammad. If you go to the mountains of Tibet, you will find the grave of Buddha. But if you go to Jerusalem, you will find no grave of Jesus Christ because he is alive. He's alive in heaven and he's alive in my soul. We don't serve a dead savior here tonight. We serve a risen savior and his name is Jesus. And closing in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. We serve a Savior that is ascended unto heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and for me. And because Jesus rose from the dead, I've got news for you here tonight. There is coming a day when the trumpet of God will sound, and those who are dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord and the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Hallelujah. I, as we conclude this series on the miracles of Jesus, I pray that it built up your faith to believe God for the supernatural in your life and your ministry today. I hope it encouraged you to believe and to know that if God did what he did in all of the various miracles throughout the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just as he is working miracles throughout his earthly ministry, he's still working miracles in the lives of his people today. 